Imagine yourselves on a battlefield. You're on this battlefield surrounded by a thousand enemies. And through some great effort, you manage to overcome the enemies single-handedly. Imagine being in this situation a thousand different times. The Buddha said that it's easier to overcome a thousand enemies single-handedly a thousand times than to liberate the mind. Maybe that gives you some appreciation of the task at hand. The difficulty in liberating the mind comes because there are some qualities or habits or forces in the mind which are very deeply conditioned, very powerful forces with which we have to contend, understand. And for as long as we don't understand how these forces are working, so long are we in a battle. But it's possible through the power of our allies, the power of mindfulness and attention and awareness, to begin to understand what these forces are and to transform them from being hindrances to liberation into sources of insight or understanding. So tonight I'd like to speak about these hindrances these forces in the mind which hinder understanding, hinder wisdom, hinder concentration. By putting the spotlight of awareness onto them, by beginning to explore and investigate their nature, it's possible to extricate ourselves from their grasp. And instead of being hindered by them, we use them to deepen our understanding. What are these five hindrances? I think as I go through them, you'll recognize how powerful, how powerfully conditioned they are in our life experience. The first of them is desire. It's the wanting mind. Desire for different pleasures of the senses. Desire for pleasant sights, or sounds, or smells, or taste desire for pleasant sensations in the body, desire for pleasant thoughts or emotions. Whenever the mind is wanting and we're identified and caught with that wanting, it becomes a hindrance. Why is wanting or desire a problem? It's important to understand at this point, because it's a point that's easily confused, that it's not the experience of the sense pleasure itself 
that's a hindrance or a problem or a difficulty. In our lives, we come into contact with things that are pleasant, with things that are unpleasant, and there's no problem in that. It's not the sense pleasure that's the difficulty, but the force of grasping in the mind. That's where the suffering comes from. Why is it a hindrance? Why is that grasping a wanting problem? It's a difficulty on many levels. And it's interesting for all of us to look very carefully at the nature of desire because it plays such an important role in our lives. We're driven so much by desire that it's essential that we look at it directly in order to understand how it's working. One aspect of desire that makes it a difficulty or a hindrance is that it never brings about the sense of completion or the sense of wholeness or the sense of fulfillment that we're looking for. Because everything is changing all the time, we reach out for something and we either get it or we don't get it. If we don't get it, there's a frustration, there's a suffering. If we do experience, if we gratify the desire, We experience that pleasure for some time and then it changes, leaving us wanting more. And so we're always in this cycle of reaching out, grasping, it changing, reaching out for more. It's that carrot that's always in front of us. How many of our desires, just reflect now in in your life, How many times have we gratified the wanting mind? Countless, countless. Most of us have been very fortunate in our lives and have had ample opportunity to gratify our wants and our desires. Are we satisfied? Has it brought about a sense of wholeness in our lives, of completion, of peace? Or do we still reach out for more? This is a story of a friend of mine. His name is Mullah Nasruddin. He's a Sufi teaching figure who's a saint and a madman and a fool and wise and all rolled into one. He went into a marketplace and he saw in the marketplace a bushel of chili peppers for sale. So he bought this big bushel of peppers. And so it's cheap. And he goes home and he starts eating them, one after the other, and his mouth is burning. His mouth's on fire and he goes on eating more and more. His friends say, why do you continue eating them? And he looks at them as if they're totally ignorant. And he says, well, I keep waiting for a sweet one. (laughs) We do exactly the same thing. We keep looking for the sweet one. You know... Just as there's a just-in-case syndrome, there's also the if-only syndrome. If only I had a new car, I'd be happy. If only I had a bigger house. 
if only I could meet the right person. I know that there's one person out there who's going to make me happy. If only I could meet that person, I'd be fulfilled. If only I had brought the right cushions to this retreat, I I wouldn't have pain and I'd be able to meditate and then I'd be happy. It goes on and on, if only, if only, if only, if only. And of course, no matter how many if onlys we actually satisfy and gratify, it's never enough. Because it's in the very nature, it's inherent in experience that everything is changing all the time. We can't hold on to anything. And so it's impossible, given the nature of experience, for something which is changing and impermanent and transitory to be the cause of our lasting happiness. So wanting or grasping is not going to do it for us. At best it gives us a temporary kind of enjoyment or relief or pleasure, but it's not the solution. It's one element of desire to look at and to to reflect upon, to see how much of our life is spent reaching out for more in the hopes that that's what's going to make us happy. And of course, it never does. Another way of looking at desire and understanding why it's a hindrance, why it's a difficulty, If you had to visualize or imagine the physical body expression of desire, how would you how would you express desire with your body, wanting? Probably something like kind of a reaching out and a holding on to, wanting. Just imagine. Do this for a moment. See what it feels like. It's pretty uncomfortable. (laughs) That's what wanting is like in the mind. It's not comfortable because (laughs) it really pulls us out of the moment. When, When we're caught, when we're identified with desire, with wanting, we're not settled back. We're not open to the moment. We're reaching out for something in the future. It's a state of being quite off balance and actually a state of tension to kind of hold this. There's a tension of being pulled forward and holding oneself back so one doesn't fall on one's face. What is it that we never want? What don't we want? We don't want what we already have. Right? There's no need to want it because we have it. When we're dropped back into the moment, when we're settled back into the moment's experiencing, receiving the gift of each moment, that's a quality of receptivity, of openness, of balance, very different than the energy of desire or grasping or wanting. And again, I hope that you can listen to this not 
not as a nice idea or theoretically, but actually to look into your own experience to see if this is true for you. Desire or wanting is such a powerful force in our lives. It's so strong. It's what runs us. That it's essential to look very honestly and carefully at exactly what it is. So we can begin to understand this particular conditioning. It's not fulfilling ultimately because things are always changing. It brings us out of the moment. It's that reaching outward. There's another aspect of it which is more subtle but very relevant to what we can experience and learn in the meditation practice. And that is that the quality of desire the quality of desire deludes the mind. When we're operating from a place of desire, that's that's a place of mental poverty. It's a stance of poverty that somehow we're not complete, we're not full, we're not whole, and we're hoping that something outside of ourselves will create that fulfillment. And it's that force of wanting, that force of desire, which obscures the fact that actually in every moment we are already whole and already complete. We don't allow ourselves the chance to experience that when we get caught over and over again in wanting. It deludes the mind in that way. Because what is it that we want? When you come down to the fundamentals of what our experience is, we see that our experience is comprised of moments of seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting sensing things in the body, and mind objects, thoughts and emotions. So what is it that we want? Another sight? I don't like this color, I want to see this color. Or a different sound? Or another sensation? Different kind of thought? It's all happening in its completion, in its wholeness, all the time. And if we can begin to understand how desire or wanting takes us away from that realization, then it's possible not to identify with the wanting mind so much, to see it just as another kind of thought or feeling, to drop back into the fullness of seeing, of hearing, of sensing, of thinking, we come back to our own completion.
It's interesting at the meditation course to see the kinds of desires that come up. You know, in the world, there's lots of opportunity. We're constantly being enticed. Our whole culture is based on that enticement. Just when you leave here and pay attention to the world of advertising. It's just a constant pulling to want to desire things. Here there's not much advertising. The interview schedule is about all that goes up. Does desire stop? Probably not, if your mind is like my mind. What are you thinking about around 11.30? You know, as the smells from the kitchen begin to waft in. Lunch is the big hit of the day around here. (laughs) Tea time. So many times I've observed myself, you know, when I'm on retreat, going to take tea, a piece of fruit, and I can be sitting and eating, and all of a sudden the desire will come for a second banana. And it can get very strong. You know, the desire for that second banana. What's going on there? You know, so sometimes I go, take the second banana, you know, and eat it mindfully. (laughs) What was the desire for? Was it for a few moments of chewing? You know, the texture of the squishiness? (laughs) We get caught in our idea. You know, it's like the idea of the second banana entices us. The actual experience is not much. (laughs) I think you'll find that generally true. The idea is what's enticing. The actual experience is just another moment of either seeing something or hearing something or tasting something or some sensation in the body. And so just to explore, to investigate how over and over again the mind gets caught, we get seduced. There's one aspect of desire I must mention only because it's so common and if you're going through it to let you know you're not alone. And that's the great Vipassana romance. You know, people come to retreat and most of you don't know one another and it's all in silence and your eyes are downcast (laughs) and somehow or other you manage to scope out everybody on the retreat. (laughs) You know, and there's one person who's attractive to you and you manage to sit next to them during lunch (laughs) and you're sitting and the mind starts fantasizing, you know, meeting them talking to them, getting into a relationship, getting married, having kids. (laughs) I once planned a wedding down to the wedding, to the guest list. (laughs) It's just the mind going out on this fantasy. It's strong. Desire is a powerful force. We have to respect it. And to see the, the enormity of the conditioning in the mind. Over and over and over again, 
we get seduced by that energy. And to the degree that we do, we lose our sense of wholeness, we lose our balance in the present, and we're going after happiness in a place that it's not going to be found. So it's endlessly frustrating. It's the first of the hindrances. This rate, this is going to be a three-night talk. (laughs) (laughs) I knew this afternoon as I started thinking about desire that I was going to get into it. (laughs) The second of the hindrances is the opposite kind of conditioning in the mind. And that's anger or aversion. Instead of grasping at something, it's the dislike, it's the condemning of an object. And there's a whole range of intensity from mild annoyance to irritation to anger to hatred. It can be something as simple as the judging mind, judging everybody around you, or to the extent of manifesting in real violence. Unlike desire, anger or aversion or ill will is obviously painful. We don't have to be too clever to see that when we're feeling angry or or hateful or strongly judgmental, that it's not, it's not a pleasant feeling. And it's a burning. We say that when somebody's angry, they're burning. They're burning up. And it's true because it's, that's the quality of the energy. When there's that relationship to experience, when there's that annoyance or anger or ill will or aversion or judgment or fear, all aspects of aversion, the mind is not in a state of balance. It's not able to actually settle back and feel what's going on in a balanced, insightful way. mind is turbulent, it's boiling. Just reflect for one moment how you feel when you're identified and caught in the emotion of anger. It, it, doesn't, feel, it doesn't feel very expansive. It's a tightening and a contraction. And so to learn how to work with it, it's, it's an emotion that comes for all of us. How can we work with anger or hatred or aversion in a way that's skillful? It's possible. It's possible to transform that into insight. One of the great advantages of anger is that when you're feeling angry, you're not sleepy. And it's it's energizing. And again, you think that here everything's nice, you know, people feed you, and you don't have anything to do. And you think there wouldn't be much cause for anger to arise. You're doing the walking meditation very slowly, just lifting, moving, placing. Somebody comes clomping by, you know, 
can't they be mindful? Don't they know they're supposed to slow down? You know, and the mind gets all irritated and judgmental. Ten minutes later, you're going to put your shoes on and you're behind somebody who's lifting, moving, <laughs> placing. What a creep, showing off. <laughs> the mind will take any opportunity. It doesn't matter. To really take a look at what's going on when there's anger in the mind, when there's judgment. I'm going to talk a little bit later in the, in the talk about how to work with all of these hindrances of desire, of anger. The third of the hindrances is one that most of you, or many of you, have experienced these first few days, and that's drowsiness or sleepiness. In the Buddhist scriptures, they have a wonderful description of it. The words they use are sloth and torpor. And it really gives you a sense of what that mind state is, is like. Last year, Alan and I were teaching in Australia. Somebody gave me a book of natural history. And in it, they described the three-toed sloth. And they hang by their tails from trees. They're so slothful that you could shoot a gun next to it and it doesn't respond. (laughs) Once a week, it comes down from the tree very slowly. And if there happens to be another sloth around, there's some propagation. If not, it goes back up in the tree. It's said that very little, very little is actually known about sloths <laughs> because nobody has had the patience <laughs> to observe them. <laughs> That's the mind state right, of just dullness and sluggishness and heaviness. And unless we know how to work with it, it's a tremendous hindrance in the practice. Obviously, there's not much insight happening when the mind is filled with sloth. Because there's desire, there's wanting, there's aversion, sloth and torpor. The fourth of the hindrances is restlessness and agitation. And that's the quality of mind that's totally scattered and dispersed and restless, worried, It's just the opposite of concentration. Again, it's so interesting to observe the nature of worry. Worry is a key component to this agitated mind. What is it that we worry about? We worry a lot about things that have happened in the past and that that are finished, done with. We worry a lot about possible things that might happen in the future. Things that have not even occurred, but we fantasize might occur and then sit and get worried about it. It's a difficult one. When, when the worry or agitation is there, it's very hard to stay present, to stay balanced. So again, to learn how to be with that energy in a skillful way. And the last of the hindrances is doubt. 
And in many ways, doubt is the most crippling. It's the one that has the power to totally obstruct our path of understanding, our path of liberation. Because when we're filled with doubt, we don't do anything, we don't proceed. Doubt about what? There's doubt about your ability to do the practice. Now it's hard, and there's the times when it's painful and all these hindrances come, and the mind starts doubting, I can't do this. Everybody else can do it, I can't do it. I'll come back next year. Um, get my life together a little bit more. It's just the voice of doubt arising. Doubt about the practice, especially, well, probably for the old students as well as the new ones. Every once in a while you take a look around at what's happening. You know, people walking around like zombies, not looking at one another, not speaking. You could definitely have some doubts about it. (laughs) What am I doing here? What is this? It's a bit like a mental hospital. certainly doubt about the teachers, you know. (laughs) Who are these guys anyway? And those doubts start working in the mind. You're you're sitting and trying to be attentive and to be present. And the doubts come, and to the degree that you get caught in the doubt, very difficult to proceed. So that's another hindrance that really has to be understood. They're powerful forces in the mind. We have to respect them. They're not insignificant. They've conditioned our lives a lot. 
So we have to come to them with a real sense of respect and openness and a certain sense of courage to look directly at what they are. Desire comes. There's an alternative to getting seduced by it, to identifying with it. And that is to make the energy of desire itself the object of the meditation, the object of awareness. Experience what desire is. Look at it, dissect it. Feel it. With awareness, with attentiveness. And you'll see that it's made up of several different things. There may be thoughts in the mind, words in the mind. There may be images in the mind. There may be bodily sensations associated with it. There may be a certain feeling state, emotional state. Not to just jump into the movie, to the story of it, but to stay settled back, recognizing that desire is there, and to look very carefully. Oh, desire, desire, desire. And that's how the energy of desire is transformed into wisdom. It's not suppressing it, and it's not judging it, and it's not pushing it down, but rather it's looking at it in the same way that I talked about looking at pain, going into it and examining and investigating it. The same attitudes can be brought to these mental hindrances, that they become the focus of our attention, and then we get to understand them. Same thing with anger or judgment aversion, fear. When these feelings come, not to push them away, not to condemn it, which is simply more anger and more judgment. Anger is there. See what that experience is like. That's different than an identified involvement. That's not getting lost in the story of what's going on, but it's settling back into the moment and feeling the intensity of the energy of it. It would be like going outside when there's a thunderstorm. You know, it's intense. It's an intense energy or experience. It would be possible to go out and to open to it, to allow oneself to feel that. In exactly the same way with anger, when that's happening, there's a strong force going on in the mind and body. To drop back into it, and explore it as if you're experiencing this for the first time. You'll see that as you do that, actually two things happen. One is that the anger or the aversion or even the hatred washes through much more easily because we're not feeding it, we're not locking it in, we're not binding ourselves to it. Certain causes and the energy arises and we're there, we're open to it, it arises and passes. And we're conscious of what happened. Another interesting thing to observe when we're mindful of the emotion of anger, in the moment of mindfulness, we're not angry. In other words, when you're being mindful of anger, in that moment, not angry. It's like watching the 
effect of the previous moment. And so the more moments of mindfulness that we bring to that mass, it's like interspersing moments of mindfulness in this cloud of anger. And if there are enough moments of mindfulness, the cloud disperses. One reflection that can be helpful with anger. Usually we get angry when somebody does something that we feel is hurtful. That's, that's usually the cause of anger. Somebody does something that in some way we feel is harmful or hurtful, so we respond with anger. If we, if we can reflect that people do harmful things or hurtful things out of ignorance. And it's certainly ignorance of the karma that's being created. Because when somebody is, somebody is doing something unskillful, they're creating karma that's going to bring suffering back to themselves. And yet they don't see it. They don't understand the consequence of their action. It's coming from a place of ignorance. What is the response to ignorance? The response to ignorance is compassion. When we see somebody walking into a fire, do you get angry at them? You don't get angry. You, you feel compassion and you try to help. If we can drop down a level from the level of reacting to the behavior from that level to the level of responding to the source, then it's much easier to let go of our own reaction of anger and come to a response of compassion. So that reflection uh, is often helpful. For when the anger does arise, then to be mindful of it, to pay attention to it, not to identify with it. Desire, this anger, sleepiness, what to do with it when it comes. Pay attention to your attitude about sleepiness. Because I think you may find that there's an attitude of aversion and judgment not liking feeling sleepy. And that attitude of aversion or judgment just creates a struggle in the mind when sleepiness is there. Instead of that, instead of condemning it or judging it or even disliking it, explore the possibility of investigating precisely and accurately what the experience of sleepiness is. You're feeling drowsy. Go right to the actual sensations that you feel. Determine what you feel where in the body. Now, different kinds of sensations of heaviness in the eyes, or pressure in different places. Dissect what we call sleepiness. Very often you'll find that 
that level of precision in our attention of the drowsiness is enough to bring energy, energy to the mind, to awaken the mind. But if we're, if we're struggling with the sleepiness because we don't like it, that struggle just makes us more tired. It's interesting to both relax into the experience of sleepiness with a quality of looking very carefully at what it is. You'll see that very quickly the sloth and torpor is dispelled. Restlessness and energy, restlessness and agitation, the energy of those feelings. Same thing, it's to be mindful. You're sitting and you feel worried or agitated or restless. Don't try to avoid it, but rather look directly at what that is. There's a little trick in meditation that you can work with. An image to describe it. Sometimes in meditation we use what could be likened to a zoom lens on a camera. Zoom in on the object. At other times, you want to use a wide-angle lens. When we're with the breath or sensations, that's the zoom lens. To go right in and get very microscopic and detailed. When there's restlessness or agitation, that energy is much too big to be accommodated by the zoom lens. You have to make the mind very wide to accommodate the energy of restlessness. If you do that, if instead of trying to stay pinpointed, you open up your awareness and you embrace the restlessness. Okay, restless. Restless, let me die of restlessness. (laughs) And that way you you establish a space that can actually accommodate it. Otherwise, it's sort of like an elephant walking into the room and you're trying to stay on your breath. It's hard. You know, there's something bigger, there's something more obvious, there's something wider that's happening. With some energies that happen in our experience, we have to, we have to expand our awareness to, to accommodate them. Doubt. When doubt comes, see it as doubt. If you get identified, if you get caught in the story, in the content of the doubt, you just stop. And it can really take you for a long ride. It's a a very powerful, powerful force. If you see it for what it is, if you see doubt as doubt, they're thoughts in the mind, they're doubting thoughts, then it's no problem. You're sitting, rising, falling, Doubting, 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 rising, falling. It's no problem. It has no power. Mindfulness is this extraordinarily potent force in our minds. It's a strong ally in this battlefield where there are a thousand enemies a thousand different times. Mindfulness is like the magic sword. And it, it, it actually is like that. Because when we are mindful of all of these states, desire or anger or sleepiness or restlessness or doubt, when we're really mindful and attentive, 
this tremendous power that they've built up in our lives, in that moment of attentiveness, it's dispelled. So it's a force for tremendous liberation, tremendous freedom. These are mind states to work with, to pay attention to. As they come up, they'll come up in different forms for each of us. It's an essential part of what the practice is and what we can learn about ourselves. Because it's the forces which both bind us and which, when understood, can help to free us. Do you have any questions about any of this? What I mean by liberating the mind is liberating it from greed and hatred and delusion. Those are the, in, in the Buddhist teachings, those are the three forces that keep us in bondage, that keep us in suffering. Keep us in bondage and suffering? Yeah. Uh, it, it should be not... It should be reasonably clear, even from a conceptual point of view, that greed and hatred and delusion are in fact, are in fact, suffering for us. Freedom from greed, and freedom from hatred, and freedom from delusion. Yes, yes. The mind in which those forces do not arise. A free mind? <laughs> Maybe if you could ask more precisely what you're getting at. If that's, if that's not... Well, maybe it does. <laughs> when there's no greed and no hatred and no delusion. Actually, in, in in the very classical teachings of the Buddha, that's exactly what does happen when the mind is free of those defilements, we go beyond mind to what is called the unconditioned or the unborn or nirvana. I generally don't like to talk about that on the third night of a retreat. (laughs) 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 I'm glad you asked. Well, as a simple way of beginning to do that, for example, would be to go from the breath to the awareness of the whole body. And an even wider way would be 
to feel the whole body and then pay attention just to hearing, just to sounds. And that's a very, very effective way of expanding the awareness because it's like the mind, the mind becomes like space in which all these sounds are coming and going. Yes? Does it? It does seem to. <laughs> um, especially in the beginning when it's not highly developed. It's a factor of mind like any other quality. As it's practiced, that quality gets stronger. As it gets stronger, it gets tired less. And when the practice is really maturing, when, when we've cultivated the factor of mindfulness, it starts to work by itself in a very effortless way. And I think I mentioned earlier on how when the mindfulness is strong, often people start sleeping you know, four hours, three hours, two hours, it's enough. Manindra described one time in his practice where he went for five days without any sleep and not not forcing it and not feeling tired. It was just mindfulness was working in that effortless, equanimous way. It may not get to that, to that height of development quickly, but it's going in that direction. Without, I missed the last thing you said. Without what? Still being able to look at the agitation as agitation, but not get caught up in it. I guess this is rather hard to. I think a good way of beginning to attempt to do it would be to ask yourself. precisely what the experience of agitation is. In other words, agitation is an abstraction for a certain collection of experiences, of bodily sensation, of thought, of a certain kind of feeling. So if you can, in the midst of it, question, okay, what actually, in this moment, is going on? What are the sensations that are being felt? And get very precise and accurate in it, it's a way of dissecting this experience which is called agitation. It's a way of going into it. You know, that it, it's the same principle as, a, as really with anger or desire or sleepiness. Not to, not to settle for the superficial impression of that state being there, but a really careful look. What is it that's happening? What is this experience? And you begin to unlayer the components. Experience 
how is it working? I think generally the, the, the direct looking at it is more effective than thinking about it. You could use a few leading thoughts to help you look like what is going on. You know, just as, just as a, it's a thought which leads you to look more carefully, but not to sit there and think about what's going on, but rather to experience it. I'll see if I understand. Actually, I'll, I'll do a Munindra who, when you ask him a question, answers what he wants to answer. <laughs> <laughs> and usually it doesn't have much to do with the question, but it's... <laughs> so. there, are two, there are two levels of mind that are interesting to differentiate and they're expressed and it has to do really with this question of morality or ethics is expressed very well by the Zen master Sansanim Korean Zen master he said there's no right and no wrong but right is right and wrong is wrong (laughs) that really sums up (laughs) Buddhist teaching on morality Because on one level, there's no right and no wrong. Everything is equally empty. And when we're sitting and just with passing phenomena, the thoughts that are happening in the mind can be the most perverse, as they often are. (laughs) And if there's no identification with them, and we're just seeing them as passing phenomena, there's no problem. There's, There's no... There's no unwholesome karma generated in that. It's just, an, it's just another empty passing phenomena happening. When we identify or when we put energy into either our thoughts or emotions, that's when we have to take responsibility for whether they're suffering causing or not. And really the, the ethics or morality of uh, meditation and the Buddhist teachings have to do with it's like the different factors of mind are called skillful and unskillful it's not, it's not good and evil so it's not a morality that's, that's it's, not, it's not like with a concept of sinfulness but it's rather realizing that certain qualities of mind certain factors of mind cause suffering and for that reason are unskillful. And certain factors of mind bring happiness, and for that reason are skillful. When we put energy into particular factors, 
So then we have to take responsibility for whether they're causing suffering or, or leading to happiness. When we're dropped back into the place of simply observing phenomena rising and passing, that itself is a wholesome state and it doesn't matter what's arising because it's, it's all seen as an empty passing shower. So I don't know whether you, you have the sense of those two levels. One level in which there's no right and no wrong and the other level on which right is right and wrong is wrong. Right, that, that's being attached to the to one side of that. There's no right and no wrong. It's being attached to that without understanding the other side, and that's exactly what people, how people often misunderstand and misuse the teachings. The and that's why it's important to understand that to understand and integrate both levels of that so you are acting appropriately to the level that you're working on in other words if you're sitting and you have the thought i'll take the banana or you have the thought i won't take the banana you're just sitting and watching these thoughts come and go it doesn't matter it's just they're just empty thoughts on the level of action it does matter because it has consequences Is that somewhat clear? Okay. Now, working with the mind in the way that we are is this tremendous challenge because we're working to understand a lifetime and perhaps many lifetimes of conditioning. And so each time we're presented with an opportunity to explore and discover the nature of this conditioning, it's really a gift. Each of these states that I mentioned tonight can be seen as a gift if we respond to it in a way that furthers our understanding of them. So when you're sitting and you're working with desire or anger or judgment, or restlessness, or sleepiness, or doubt. Instead of seeing it as a problem, you can really see it as a challenge for opening up another whole level of understanding the nature of the mind. So it's possible to, to, use, these, to use these forces in the mind very much to deepen our understanding of ourselves. Really, is, it's an opportunity an opportunity to transform them from being hindrances to sources of insight. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.